Hey, what's up, guys? It's Rico here, CEO of Source Financia, host of the Channel Podcast, and the host of the Source Financia YouTube channel. Back with another one. This is a video cast that I did on Riley's new YouTube channel and uh, course. I think it's called 90 Day FBA. Um, little play on 90 Day Fiance, I'm sure. Which, by the way, I've been during the lockdown, I got super into 90 Day Fiance. Like, I, I watched so many of those episodes. <laughs> got really invested in the stories um, and the spin-off shows. That's that's for that's for another time. So yeah, uh, Riley they they have a course called Ninety Day FBA, and the concept is basically being able to launch an, an Amazon product in ninety days. So they're teaching people how to do that. I obviously came in as the sourcing from China expert. They've on their website, I think they, they've, at this stage, they might have like maybe 15 episodes or something like that, where they've interviewed people from different aspects of, of, of the Amazon game. So like, you know, uh, marketing, like PPC marketers, graphic design, um, sourcing from India, uh, web development, obviously sourcing from China, quality control. Like, so they've, they really just try to get a masterclass from each individual that is a specialist in their field. So that's this that's what this was. So those episodes are free on their site, but then they obviously have their course that you can uh, sign up for if you're trying to launch an Amazon product and you want to do it in a short space of time and learn from people that have done it themselves, like Riley, who's been you know running products on Amazon for I think probably over five years now. Without further ado, enjoy the episode. I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. Boom, welcome back. Huge one today. I got my friend Rico Ingoma of sourcefindasia.com. I was connected with Rico a couple years ago. His sourcing company is a game changer. And in this presentation, he's going to go over the four steps to find a Chinese supplier. Real quick, his company, it is huge. I recommend it to everyone. Basically, what they can do is they can take care of the sourcing side from A to Z. They can find samples for you. They can negotiate with the supplier for you. They can a to Z manage your whole project for you. They can do product photos. So that's huge having someone, he has a team on the ground in China. They can handle the negotiations, getting your product made from A to Z. So I've used them multiple times over the years and uh, I recommend them. So you can check them out at sourcefindasia.com. He's based in Asia, team in China, like I said, from Toronto, Canada, repping the six. Rico, are you there? What's up? Hey man, what's up? Thanks for the intro. So yeah, you're in uh, you're in Manila these days. These days, I'm located in in the Philippines. Let me just share my screen real quick. Cool. Yeah, let's see. Go ahead and share your screen, and then uh, boom, four steps to finding a quality Chinese supplier. So yeah, yeah, guys, listen to the end. This is gonna be some huge knowledge, and uh, he's got a PDF to uh, at the end. So. So just a little bit of background, as Riley mentioned, I'm based in BTC in the Philippines. Started the company, my business partner started the company a little bit over 12 years ago. And 
because he had a second business, he kind of shut it down. And then when we met, he wanted to restart the business and have me kind of run it and, and be the face of it. So that was a little bit over five years ago. And I lived in China for five years. I left pre-COVID, like literally a few mm-hmm. weeks for the, the breakout. And I originally was supposed to come to, to the Philippines in, in, in April, but Obviously, with COVID, I decided to move early, but my business is set up now in a way, as, as I'm sure Riley talks about a lot of times in, on the YouTube channel, and, and I'm sure even in some of these presentations, my business is now set up in a way where I don't physically have to be in China. I've got a good team. We set up automated systems, so I'm, I'm not working in the company anymore. I'm working on the business, and I can do presentations like this. I also run a YouTube channel called Source Financia and a podcast called The Made in China Podcast, and me and Lorenzo go way back. Mm-hmm. Um, he's actually a big part of the reason why I moved to China in the first place. I found a forum that Lorenzo had posted. He posted something about two dudes in the U.S. running a YouTube channel called The Elevator Life. Now it's Enter China. And that was like a big part of the reason why I decided to move to China. So I have to give a shout out to Lorenzo for that. Ah, it was a pleasure. Your business partner, that's uh, China Mike, right? It's China Mike, yeah. Yeah, I know. He's a, a very legit guy, yeah. So you, you guys are in good hands. Nice. So we've, uh, over the last five years, we've exported products all over the world, uh, roughly $20 million in mass productions. We worked with small entrepreneurs, startups, and we've also worked with really large corporations like Cirque du Soleil. So our experience runs through the full gamut, whether it's OEM products, which is, I think, a lot of, a lot of what the guys, I mean, that's the whole program that you guys are doing, right? And then we work a lot with ODM as well, people that want to do Kickstarters and, and, and design their own products from scratch. So my presentation today in four steps to find a high quality supplier is a presentation I've done a few times. It's quite long, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an abbreviated version. And then you can also download the PDF on the website that goes a little bit more in depth. And it's essentially what we like to call the safe method. So just four simple steps taking you from searching for suppliers all the way down to how to roughly manage mass productions. The mass production part of it is also a little bit brief because that's a whole other story. But by the end of this presentation, you're going to be able to know how to assess a factory, how to get your contracts and things like that set up, and also a little bit on how to manage an actual mass production. So without further ado, I'll jump into it. So the first step is super simple search. It's really important. I think that there's a few different ways that you can go about searching. If you're based in China, like I was, and you, or you have a team in China where you can hire a company in China, you want them to be able to go offline, not just online. So physically going to factories and physically going to the markets to find goods, that's a good way of finding suppliers that are going to be difficult for your competitors to, to work with. And usually a lot of times if a factory is not listed online, they're a little bit less expensive. But then I think the main way that a lot of guys who are going to be watching this presentation are going to go online. And there's, there's a couple of different websites. There's Alibaba, that I'm sure you guys know about, Global Sources, and 1688. So the differences between the three, Alibaba is obviously the most famous one. But Alibaba is sort of like a spray and pray situation. Like they, they allow a lot of factories to be on there. And that's a big part of the reason why they're popular. But... A lot of times, most of the, the suppliers that are listed on Alibaba 
are trading companies. And I'll mm-hmm. talk about how to kind of figure out the difference between a, a factory and a trading company shortly. But Global Sources is a little bit more niche. They take a lot of time to assess suppliers. They don't allow any factory or any any trading company to be listed. And you, you're more likely to find higher quality suppliers on Global, global Sources, but you're just not going to have as many options. 1688 is probably one that a lot of people don't know about, but it's essentially the Chinese version of Alibaba. So all of the factories on there tend to be, you know, tend to not have English speaking sales staff. They tend to not have as much experience with exporting abroad. But at the same time, you can really take advantage of that because most people are not going to be able to find those factories. Most, most of your competitors are not going to be able to find those factories. And those factories are going to be less expensive. The, the negative side of it is that you have to walk them through the import-export process, which is something that we've actually done for Riley in some of his products, where we found suppliers that were listed on 1688. And then we set it up and then we passed it on to them. So that being said, uh, in terms of trying to figure out the difference between a, a real factory and a trading company, there's a couple of different ways. I think when you go to their websites on Alibaba, one of the things I always look out for is how many years of experience do they have? And then how is their website laid out? Like if they show a lot of pictures of the factory, if they show a lot of certifications, it's always a good sign. If everything makes sense, that's a good sign. And then if they, if they have a bunch of different products, let's say they have cell phone covers and then they also have shoes and then they have random LED toys, then that's a major, major red flag that this is a trading company because every single product, as simple as it might look, has to have a ton of machinery to create. So there's not Mm -hmm. that many factories that have the space or the capacity or the expertise Mm -hmm. to make, you know, five different products at the same time. So that's a big one. Uh, in terms of figuring out if it's a trading company just by the initial assessment. And then um, when you start to communicate with them as well, there are also ways to to figure out if you're dealing with a trading company, which leads me to the next section, which is assess. When it comes to assessing suppliers, what I like to do, so when I go through that whole process of going through the, you know, the, the factories in Alibaba, or global sources or 1688, my team usually creates a shortlist, what we like to call an initial factory list. Um, and, and there'll be an example of this in, in the PDF that you guys can download. And it's essentially just the basic information that we take off of Alibaba or global sources or 1688. And that's the name, factory location, other information like MOQ and are they a trading company or factory. And then we start to communicate with them. So we send them an initial email or uh, sometimes with, with my team, they're talking to the, to the suppliers to QQ or Alibaba trade manager, which is you know, managed by Alibaba. We're asking them the basic information to eliminate them. So we're making a bullet point. This is extremely important because I think a big mistake that people make when they email the factory for the first time is they send what to them seems like an organized email, which would be like, you know, two paragraphs of questions. Mm-hmm. And that's okay if you're communicating with somebody whose language, whose language is English as a first language or even as a second language. But a lot of times with Chinese suppliers, English might be their third or fourth language. And so it's going to be confusing for them to have this blocked text. So what you want to have is you want to have bullet pointed questions. So you, you're asking, you're doing a brief introduction of your company 
you know, one or two or three sentences. Hi, my name is such and such. I'm the purchasing manager of this company. We're exporting, you know, goods to the, to the U.S. or to the U.K. And here is my list of questions. Point A, are you a trading company or a factory? Point B, you know, is your MOQ flexible? Point C, you know, whatever the most relevant questions that you want to ask that would just quickly eliminate suppliers. A lot of times when you ask a supplier point blank, if they're a trading company or a factory, they'll tell the truth. So that's really, really important with that initial email. And then once you start to get responses, I think that you should always get responses from suppliers, legitimate suppliers within one or two days. It should never take, you know, three, four or five days for them to reply. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's always a bad sign, especially when you're just sending that initial email. It's not, it's not going to be a lot of information. So they should be able to respond to you really quickly. I like to look at it from an OEM perspective. If I'm assessing a factory, I want to know if there's flexibility for them to do original stuff in the future. I want to know if there's flexibility for if, if we're able to build up the orders and the production to a certain capacity, would they be interested in doing exclusivity agreements? Of course, that depends on, you know, what your plans are for your business or that depends on whether you actually want to build out a multiple product line and if you can get exclusivity in, in a specific country maybe to start with. Those are the kind of things that you want to assess at that stage. Any questions at this stage? This is all, this is all gold. Um, yeah, those, those supplier tips are great. Taking notes. Just a quick question. People still using QQ in China right now? So that's a way gone by now. No, they still use it. It's just not as it's not as popular, but it, it's okay. still used. Okay, cool. Especially for file sharing, because QQ has it's just faster and you can there's no limit on the files that you send. So a lot of people use QQ in the same way that you can use uh, Google Drive. A uh, question uh, in regards to uh, differences between uh, Alibaba and sixteen sixty eight. Did you notice a big difference in terms of pricing and terms? Or is it pretty much same, same? 1688 is less expensive, for sure. Like well, you would say, what, 20%, 30%, roughly speaking? Well, it varies for sure. But yeah, I would say, I'll say on average, 20%. And it can go okay. anywhere up to 40%. Because, wow. I mean, what you're paying for when, you, when you're going through Alibaba is you're paying for a factory that's typically bigger, a factory that mm-hmm. has export experience. The 1688 guys, they are selling locally. So, mm-hmm. you know, they might have the same quality product, but they can't sell it for the same price okay. in China as they can sell it for abroad. So you guys have dealt before with factories from 1668? Yeah, a, a lot. Okay. A lot. Like actually one of the suppliers that we, we hooked up Riley with was off of uh, nice. 1688 because, uh, I mean, Riley gave us a, a target price. So... When we went on Alibaba, we realized that it just wasn't going to happen. So we had to we had to find the supplier from 1688. And there's nothing wrong. Again, there's nothing wrong with suppliers from 1688. It's just that you have to kind of educate them more about the import export yeah. process. And what I, what I mean by that is just making sure that you know if your product has some sort of safety requirements to be sold mm-hmm. on Amazon. A good example would be PPE products, which is you know what people have been dealing with a mm-hmm. lot in the last couple of months is if you needed to have an FDA certification or a specific CE certification, the factories on 1688 might not know what that is. So you, ha- you would have to be the person to tell them, 
you know, I need this certification and it's going to this country and this is the, these are the import documents that I need for, for Amazon, you know, like things like that, that you usually don't have to communicate as much with, with factories with export experience. So for someone that might be listening right now to this podcast and looking to uh, experiment with 1688, so obviously the first thing they need to do is don't just send them an email in English, but have it translated in Chinese. Yeah. And then if, if they need any help, then in that case, they, this is when a company like yours come in handy so you can walk them, walk them through the steps uh, when it comes to all the paperwork and requirements for Amazon and stuff like that, right? Yeah, I wouldn't, I, yeah, I wouldn't recommend a first-time sourcer to to work off of 1688 unless they have additional help for sure uh, and yeah. unless they can speak in mandarin uh, i would say people listening yeah. just hire source find asia and they'll handle it for you um i've done it a couple times and their prices are reasonable yeah. so i'll just be honest <laughs> and then sure. another the the last part i think when it comes to assessing before we move into the, to the next stage would be making sure that they have the right payment terms and price points. But when I say payment terms, a lot of times, if you're working with a factory off of 1688, like I said, even if you can manage to communicate all your requirements, they might need you to pay in local currency. So those are the, those are the kind of things you have to ask early. Otherwise, you're going to develop this whole relationship with, with the factory. And then at the end, you're not going to be able to, to pay them. So speaking of that, with another company. I'd like your feedback on something recall because i've been talking i live in china for four years and i talk to to people on that and they I keep on getting like different uh, answers when you first contact a supplier do you ask them for quotations and usd or in rmb which is better what's your take on that i like to ask i like to ask for them in rmb but then the second question after that would be do you accept usd payments so like the first time we email them or we contact them, we might ask for the R&B quote. And then as we get deeper into assessing them, we will ask if they, if they accept USD payments. But I, a lot of times with us, it's, I mean, I want to know what their USD pricing is just so I can see that how they're, how they're charging differently. Sure. But a lot of times with us, it doesn't matter because if we have to pay an R&B, we, we can do that. It's, it's never really my preference to pay an R&B, but if it's necessary for us or necessary for our clients, we can we can facilitate that. And generally speaking, what do uh, factories prefer to be paid in RMB or USD? I think it depends on the supplier. the The ones okay. that are on sixteen eighty eight are going are definitely like ninety percent of the time sure. are going to want to receive RMB payments mm-hmm. simply because they just don't have a USD bank account. Sure. Like unless, so I mean, this is a, a little bit of a, a tangent, but. The way it works is if you're a trading company or a factory in mainland China, when your business gets set up, you get set up with a local business account. That's a U, that's a RNB account. To get a USD account, you have to apply for a license. You have to apply for an import-export license and then get the, the bank account. And a lot of times that process of applying for the import-export license is, is very tedious. And there's a lot of taxes involved. So a lot of times trading at trading like myself, like we don't have a USD account in mainland China. We have our, our Hong Kong trading company that can receive yeah. any currency. Mm-hmm. And then we have our business R&B account in mainland. I don't see any point of us getting a USD account in mainland sure. China just because the taxation on it is, is ridiculous. So that's, also, that's, 
that's that's a lot of damage mm. with the cases. And speaking of that, uh, from, from what I heard and what I saw, a lot of those Chinese factories and businesses that, that deal with overseas, they have a Hong Kong uh, office that uh, so they can handle payments and so they currencies. can receive the pay- yeah, yeah exactly. So so I, I mean yeah, a lot of times we're paying the suppliers into their Hong Kong business account as well from our from our Hong Kong business account, which yeah. which works out perfectly. I think the next part of the assess period uh, is if you can't physically be in China, I think you want to be looking at samples. Obviously, uh, we usually recommend that clients order around three to five samples. Mm-hmm. If you can go up to ten, but I would say five is is a good is a good sweet spot. And uh, you know it can obviously become pricey. So one of the things that we do is we offer a service where we will receive. A bunch of samples and consolidate those and then mm-hmm. maybe take out the bad ones before we ship them to to our to our clients so there's there's you know if you're working with a company you can do things like that but if not i would say you want to see if you can try to consolidate your samples through maybe shipping them to a freight forwarder first who can put the samples together and then ship them to you in one go because then you're, you're going to save money on, on you know the express shipments um, and when you said uh, thirty to five, forty bucks a pop, when you said five to ten uh, samples, are you talking from the same supplier, or from different suppliers, or both? From from different suppliers, mm. but I mean, if it, I guess it depends on the product. But like, if mm. you wanted to look at a product that has, let's say, different colors or different materials, sure. then you probably want to order a couple samples per factory. But mm-hmm. if the product is the exact same product, I would say five samples from five different suppliers. Um, and, and then that should give you a good way to assess the quality yeah. of the suppliers. And this is after, obviously, you've had you know, conversations about pricing and, and mm-hmm. you've asked all the, the relevant questions that I mentioned before. And uh, uh, for me, the biggest thing in, when it comes to that is after we've received samples and we, we communicate with clients, I think it's important to physically go to, to the factories and do a physical inspection mm-hmm. at the suppliers. The reason is because you just never know a hundred percent what you're dealing with until you, until you show up there. There's been times when, you know, we communicated with uh, what we thought were reputable factories, and then we showed up at their location, and it was clearly not owned by them. Yeah. Like they were, they'd put up some signs, and they, like they, they basically created a factory overnight. <laughs> um, and and for me, with my experience and my team's experience, it's pretty easy to to tell those kind of things. So I think it's really important that like the last step of assessing a factory is physically going there. Yeah. Um, and if you can, if you have the five, five samples and you like three of them, then I think you should go to all three factories of maybe go to the, the best one first and then try to still go to at least two of them because what you want is you also want, you want to have a backup option, right? So like if you, if you start working with one and you know that clearly this is the supplier for us, you just want to have that backup option in your pocket in case anything happens, like in case something like COVID happens and, and you know, your main factory mm-hmm. becomes too busy to, to do a mass production order. You want to be able to pivot and, and find another supplier. So you guys uh, handle that type of stuff too? For sure. I think, uh, I mean, with that, that's, that's something that we do with our initial research is we always try to recommend three to five suppliers. Um, and then obviously we, we do factory inspections mm. as well as mass production management. So Rico, so you nice. guys, your office is located in Guangzhou, right? Yes. So are you, all your staffs located in Guangzhou? You have staffs also in other parts of the country. For example, let's say you have a factory in Zhejiang, mm. another one in Beijing, another one in Hebei, whatever. 
do you send your staff from from, uh, from Guangzhou? You have uh, local people in those areas. My main my main team is in southern China, but we we work with in uh, professional inspection companies. So if we have to do a factory inspection, that's too far away for one of my team or one somebody from my team to travel mm-hmm. to. Then we have reputable businesses that we worked with for years. Okay, that we that we we hire out and 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 send to the suppliers. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times, especially when it's a bigger project you know, the client would still prefer for us to go there, even though it's going to be more expensive. So, Mm. you know, we will, we'll still travel. It just means getting on a plane. I mean, I was last year, I spent half of my year in Northern China Mm -hmm. for one specific project. Uh, I I had to be there every month in the factory. All right. So moving on to F, which is finalized. So now that you've gone through that whole assessment period, you should probably have, like I mentioned, three to three options, probably two that are going to be ones that you want to focus on. And ideally, you've you know, looked at samples, but you've also physically inspected those locations. And then now you want to set up your contracts. So typically with suppliers, with OEM, non-disclosure agreements are not necessary unless you're going to change some aspects to the product but you definitely want to have at least a basic sales agreement set up. So the sales agreement is essentially a document that says I'm buying this product for X amount of money. It's going to take this long for the production to be completed. And the most important aspect of the sales agreement, and it's probably going to take the longest to negotiate with your suppliers is the quality control. Mm -hmm. Like what happens if this happens? So if, if you do an inspection on your, your goods, and you know, there's there's uh, the defect the defect rate is higher than it should be. What are we doing? Are we replacing the goods? Are we you know getting a discount from the factory? Like that's a very important question to answer. And the just a general to give people a general idea of, of how these inspections work. There's a standard called the AQL uh, AQL level AQL mm-hmm. level standards, and there's AQL level one, two, and three. Uh, just to give you a brief overview, the most common one is AQL level two, and it, it's a standard that's a global standard that works with a bunch of different factories. And it's essentially saying, you know, there's a critical, major, and minor defects. And on an AQL level two inspection, critical defects would be zero percent. Major defects would be roughly two to three percent allowed, and then minor defects would be roughly three to four percent allowed. And what they do is when you're doing a physical inspection of of products, you're not going to inspect the entire production unless the production is so small where you want to pay for multiple days of inspections. So with an AQL level two inspection, let's say your your production order is 5,000 units, they're actually going to take out, according to the chart, they're going to take out 200 or 300 units for the inspection. Uh, And then out of that two or 300 units, those percentages would be applied. So it's your responsibility to decide what a critical defect is, what a major defect is, and what a minor defect is. The general guidelines are critical defect makes the product unsellable. So that's why it's 0% allowed. Question, Rico. Sorry, question, Rico. So for example, you mentioned the AQL uh, three levels. uh, Does that uh, vary and change depending on what level the inspection is? For example, let's say if it's a pre-inspection, during inspection, and post-inspection, does that change or does it remain the same throughout? No, it it should be the same because you're setting a standard, right? The differences between 
in AQL level one, two, and three is the strict the, the strictness of inspections. Mm -hmm. So the the least strict inspection is AQL level one, and then the most the most strict is AQL level three. So AQL level two is just the average. That's why it's the most commonly used one. And so as I was saying, the, so critical defects are typically the defects that make a product unsellable. That's so that makes that's why it's zero percent. Major defects are defects that would be noticeable to the end consumer, but it they it doesn't make the product unsellable. It just might devalue the product in their eyes. And then minor defects are typically defects that only the buyer or you know the the person who actually made the product would notice. So that's sort of the the general guideline there when it comes to the sales agreements. And like like I said, that takes the longest. That's the longest thing that takes to negotiate with suppliers besides price. Another major thing that people miss out is they should try to have their sales agreements translated into Chinese. And the reason is because if anything happens and you do want to, you do decide to, to pursue legal action, factories are allowed to say the contract was in English. We didn't understand this specific point. That's, that's an actual argument that's allowed in, in Chinese courts. So it's really important to have the factory, uh, to have the contract translated into Chinese, we have, for us, we have templates that were created by lawyers. Mm -hmm. So really for us, it's just plug and play. Like we just have to change the defects we do and, and sort of the pricing and the product name, product description. Yeah. Um, but all, all another also, reason guys to, to my friends listening, I would say, oh, another reason to just outsource this <laughs> with them so they can handle it, the quality control the contracts, the, the, um, negotiating these sales agreements and, and everything as a business owner, if you have the money and you're not totally bootstrapped, it's totally worth it to outsource this type of stuff. So you can worry about other things. And what are your thoughts on, for example, getting a Chinese lawyer to draft all this documentation, all these contracts versus say a foreign lawyer? Do you think a Chinese lawyer would be better off because it's, I don't know. Yeah, I think the Chinese lawyer. Yeah, the Chinese lawyer is going to be better off because they understand mm -hmm. what their requirements are more. So what happened with with yeah? So what happened with us is if you can do it like this, this might be you know the most ideal way. We had a lawyer in in Canada draft the original sales agreement, and then later on we had it translated and oh, okay. updated by a Chinese lawyer. But the Chinese lawyer could have done both. It's just. At the time, I wasn't thinking that way. I was like, kind of, mm -hmm. I was inexperienced in that, in a sense. Sure. And um, and then later on, when I realized that I needed to have the documentation in both languages, I contacted the Chinese lawyer. Okay. And I, it, and a little bit of advice when it comes to that, to make sure that the English side of your contract is good. If you're going to work with a Chinese lawyer, I'd recommend finding a lawyer in Hong Kong mm -hmm. or Shenzhen. Sure. Because those lawyers are used to dealing with foreigners, mm -hmm. and generally their the language barrier is going to be less of an issue. If you're searching for a Hong Kong lawyer, a Hong Kongese lawyer, or a lawyer that's uh, from Shenzhen, have you come across any? For example, I heard some people saying that when you submit a contract, the Chinese will either remove or add clauses to the Chinese version of the contract without notifying you and all that. Have you encountered any such uh, cases before? No, I mean I've definitely had factories remove uh, a clause, but they when they sent it back to us, like I mean we noticed that the clause was gone, or they mentioned it to us. We've never had, we've never had a factory try to try to do that. And a big part of it is when you are getting your contracts signed, 
with the factories, it, it has to be stamped with the red seal that the factories usually have. That makes it final. Like, I mean, they, if they made a second version of the contract, then it would be, you know, there would be a dispute in terms of why, you know, two contracts were signed with the same stamp. Mm-hmm. And another, another aspect is, yeah, you definitely want to have somebody who's seen those stamps uh, evaluated because the stamp sure. itself isn't Chinese. So mm-hmm. you wouldn't necessarily be able to read, like the stamp is supposed to say the company name. So it's really important to make sure that your, your contract is stamped. You can sign the contract as a foreign entity. You can sign the contract, but you need to have it stamped by the factory. Yes. And then some other important bits of information to have listed on the, factory, on the contract is whose bank account you're sending to. Mm-hmm. So going back to my original thing in, in, the, in the assess phase of figuring out whether the, the factory can receive USD payments, a lot of times, if a factory doesn't have a USD bank account and they don't have a Hong Kong bank account, they'll give you somebody's personal bank account. Oh wow! Which which can become problematic if you sure. do have to pursue that legally. You know, mm-hmm. the, the first question the courts are going to ask is, "Why are you paying for you know business? Why are you paying for goods to somebody's personal bank account?" So that's really, really, if you, if you have a very close relationship with the factory and you trust them, sure, you know, yeah. then more power to you if, you, if that's easier. But um, I, I wouldn't recommend it for first time sellers or the first time you're, first time you're working with a supplier. So how do you verify that the account they sent you is actually a business account and not just their, the friend's account? Is there ways for you to verify that? It's pretty easy because the name well, okay, yeah, it's yeah. easy if you can read Chinese. The name will uh-huh. be either a company name or somebody's sure. personal name. And then also the structure is a little bit different uh-huh. when it comes to a personal USD account versus like a, a business USD account. But if you get, I think you could, this is something that you could even do with Google Translate is if you see the name translated and see if it's the same name as the, that they gave you, that the, uh-huh. that the factory gave you. And you can also request for their business license to verify that the name is, is the same. Like in, in the way that works with the verification of the business license to make sure that they didn't send you a fake business license because that, that happens. Oh, yeah. You can actually <laughs> scan the QR code on the business license and it takes you to the local municipality's website. Mm-hmm. And that lists out all the information about the company, how long they've been running, you know, who's the owner, the location, the name, all that stuff. All right. So at, at the end of the finalized period, you should be signing, signing a contract and having it stamped. And then you're going to go into mass production. So the reason why I called this section Elevate is I feel like a lot of times people, if they don't understand how to manage a mass production and they're doing it themselves, they think that the work is over once they've signed the contract and sent an initial deposit. And in my opinion, the, the work is just getting started, especially if it's your first time working with a factory. Sure. Um, some things that can happen if you're not paying attention is you do your whole mass production. And then at the end of the production, you know, you, you're coming out with 60% defective rates on, on your goods. And then now you have to deal with trying to get the, trying to get the factory to replace all of that. A lot of times your productions can be pushed back. If the factory feels like it's not a big deal, they'll just push back your production and you know, you'll come back to them after 20 days and ask them 
is my mass production ready? And they'll say, oh, no, sorry. Uh, by the way, we had to push you back by 15 days. And you're like, okay, but why didn't you say something? No, it's like, why didn't you say something earlier? So you don't want to just sit back. You want to elevate your relationship. Oh, wow. and, and the way mm-hmm. the way you do things like that is make sure you're communicating in the right channels. So if you're talking to a supplier and initially you're talking via email, you might want to shift from email to WeChat or QQ because it's going to be much easier to communicate with your salesperson and get quick answers sure. if you're talking to them on, on, on WeChat. Mm-hmm. Um, email should be mainly used for things like documenting. So when you're mm-hmm. sending out contracts and things like that, like that's the time when you want to send an email. But in, in terms of just the day-to-day Hey, and it, it doesn't take that much to send a message to the factory and say, hey, can I have an update on my production? Can you send me pictures? You know, things like that. And then at the same time, you're dealing with a human being. So you might want to develop a relationship with your salesperson. You might want to ask them about their personal life, share, you know, share stories about yourself and, and sort of build that connection. I always make it a point when I meet salespeople for the first time, because, you know, family is very important in China is mm-hmm. to ask them if they're married, if they have kids. And then, you know, the next time I see them, I'm asking, how are the kids? You know what I mean? Like, I just try to maintain that relationship. And then yeah, over socialize time... Socialize a bit, yeah. Socialize a bit, yeah. It, it, um, I think that's a big issue with the West is we're so used to moving very quickly when it comes to business. Mm-hmm. But w- the way it works in Asia is, is that they want to build the relationship first before they build you know the, the business partnership sure. so if the, if they don't feel that connection with you then it might become problematic in the future if you want to if you want them to do things for you that are let's say like out of the scope of of the original agreement another thing is understanding how your factory operates uh this is extremely important because you wonder why you're asking somebody to do something and they can't get it done and a lot of times it's because you're talking to the wrong person. Mm-hmm. So a salesperson, for example, doesn't know much about, well, not, not, not always, but a lot of times a salesperson doesn't have a lot of technical knowledge, sure. right? So if you're asking the salesperson a million technical questions and they're not giving you full answers or straight answers or they, ha- or they have to take two days to, to reply, that's because they probably had to go and either talk to their manager who's, who's more experienced or they had to go and talk to the engineer. You know, so that's, that's another aspect to remember is like, who are you talking to? And then sometimes with this decision-making, you know, the salesperson might not have the decision-making power to let's say give you a discount because of defects. Mm-hmm. So maybe you want to have your salesperson that you talk to on a regular basis, but you also want to ask for the information of their manager or at least to be introduced to their manager sure you know, when you're going through the, the finalized phase, right? So it's really important just to understand, like, how does your factory operate? Who are you talking to? Is that the right person? Is that the right person to ask this question to? And then just in general, uh, understanding the, the workflow of the factory, like how what the, the chain of command is and how they do their productions. So this happened really early on with my business is we were doing an original design and our client wanted to do a beta run, which we usually do when it's a first production because you're making this product for the first time. So you want to make sure that you don't just jump into a mass production. So the idea was let's order 50 items first as the beta production run, and then we'll jump into the full mass production. Uh-huh. 
And luckily, when we went to the factory, we asked this question. We asked them, you know, so when, how long is it going to take for the first 50, uh, 50 samples to be done off of the main production line? And they said, we're not going to use the main production line. And we were like, why? Because you ordered 50. And mm. then we asked them, how much do we need to order to do the mass production on the actual mass production line? They said, you need to, we never open up our mass production line unless somebody orders over 50 units. <laughs> so I have a question so, on that because we encountered this, we had a call with our students just uh, before that. And one of the students yeah. was uh, placing a small order for say 400 units. And um, for, in cases like that, because as you said, they're not going to open a new production line for anything less than say a thousand units, whatever the MOQ is. So in that case, I asked her to, to ask the fact, where, is, where are those units coming from? Are these from uh, leftovers from previous orders? Are they from, uh, they're getting it from other uh, suppliers or that? How do you guys approach that? Do you also ask, uh, for example, for smaller orders, where are those units coming? Are they coming from off the shelves, from previous uh, uh, runs, or, uh, or if you get it from other suppliers? Do you also uh, inquire as to where are the uh, units from the smaller uh, orders coming from? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a conversation that you have very early. Is like I remember when I I mentioned that you want to ask them if their MOQ is flexible. Sometimes a factory will open their if they if they want the business. Maybe they're not so busy. Maybe they can add your goods to their to their other productions if there's not that much customization involved with with the goods. So you can have that conversation for sure. Uh, trying to figure out where the the goods are coming from is just, and yeah, most of the time if it's a reputable supplier. Trading company is going to buy from another factory. If the, if the original right. supplier that, that they were going to buy from says that the production is too small, they're just going to find another supplier to, to, to fulfill that order. But if it's an actual factory, they're either going to reject the order or they're going to tell you to wait. So they'll give you like a long production time. And then the reason why they're doing that is because they want to just basically build up a bunch of different orders and put it together. Sure. So... Yes, yeah, so as I was saying, like it was a really important that we asked that question because what would have happened with this particular production is that the engineers were going to make those fifty, the the fifty uh, beta production samples, and that wouldn't have been good because the engineers' sample quality would have been much better, or at least not the same as mass production, which defeats the whole purpose of what we were trying to do. So in that situation, we just ended up ordering, you know, ten more. And then we did the beta production run on the actual production space. So it's just really important to understand those things. Like how does the factory actually work? Um, otherwise, like I said, you're going to end up like asking yourself why the beta production run quality is different from the mass production quality. And then another thing is when it comes to elevating, you want to help the factory find problems. So don't even if the factory says that they have their own QC in place, I don't think it's ever a good idea for you to just wait and have the factory do their own QC. So like yeah. either doing things like what I mentioned, which is like a beta production run. If, if there's customization involved with your goods, I definitely think you should do some sort of beta production run or at least a during production inspection on, on your first order. Like I think it's extremely important if you, if you don't do that, you're just setting yourself up for, for failure. Yeah. And then when it comes to the end of the production, doing your final inspection, again, if a factory says, we did an inspection and everything is great, send the money. I don't think you should do that. I think you should be sending an inspection company to do a final random Absolutely. inspection 
always, even if the production is, is a small production, you know, saving $200, $300 over losing a whole production. Uh, I, I don't think that's, that's a smart move. So it's really important to, to go through that process and that's how you continue to elevate your relationship with the factory. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's pretty much it, guys. In terms of the safe method, as I mentioned, nice. the, P, the PDF goes a little bit more in depth. This was uh, essentially a summary of, of the longer presentation. And you know, there should be, there'll be some examples of some of the documents that I mentioned that will be listed in the PDF. And uh, in terms of sales agreements, for you guys, I, w- I, I can also provide our English sales agreement template. Nice. Cool. Yeah, thanks for doing that. Lots of uh, lots of awesome tips right there. And uh, everyone listening, you can check the links below for uh, his website and everything that we're talking about. Yeah, all of this ins and out stuff, Just I just keep thinking of... Uh, in the back of my head, like, yeah, so glad I decided to uh, outsource all this stuff and hire a company like you guys because if you want to do it right, and especially if you're a beginner, you're not going to do it right yourself as a beginner. So that's essentially, that's what his, his company does, you know, obviously by popular demand. So I recommend if you're not totally bootstrapping to outsource this to these guys, just going to be honest, my experience is all positive with SourceFind Asia and Rico. You know, he's friends of friends, so uh, it all kind of came together, and, and it's been working out. It's been good. So uh, highly recommended. Links below. And, uh, Rico, thanks again. Thanks. Thanks for having One me. One more question, Rico. Sorry. Um, so in the current climate, are you, are you, are you seeing that uh, the Chinese factory is a little bit more willing to um, more receptive, more flexible with terms because they're hurting with business? Are you, are you noticing any, uh, any such, uh, you know, behavior from them right now? Uh, in terms of payment terms, I think, I don't think much has changed, but maybe, uh, maybe the, the sizes of the orders or the mm-hmm. factories are going for smaller orders because if they didn't pivot to, to PPE products, then, you know, most of the factories, their, their usual business went down. So yeah, for sure. There's definitely more flexibility with order quantities right now. Mm-hmm. But I would say they're still going to request typical payment terms, which would be 30% up, um, 70% down. If it's a smaller order, they might they might request a higher deposit. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, I got some uh, more specific questions about stuff uh, I, I got going on right now, but I'll ask you after the call. Again, check them out. Links below, guys. Uh, thanks again, Rico. We'll talk soon. Hey, what's up, guys? Thanks for listening to this episode of the Main Cheddar Podcast. If you want to reach out to us, that's podcast at sourcefinasia.com. If you want to check out the show notes from the episode that you just watched, that's sourcefinasia.com slash made in China. And be sure to also check out our YouTube channel, sourcefinasia, all one word. Cheers.